Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another awesome, amazing Thursday afternoon class. I want to thank you all for coming out here. For those of you who are present here on the Zoom class right now, and especially those of you brave enough to put on your cameras so we see that you are true human beings and not some sort of bot army uh, of people who are uh, supposedly heading. Now I'm kidding. Uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining. I want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for arranging for our classes for the last decade or so plus. I mean, I've, I've been here now for 15 years, almost 16 years in, the, in Partners. So it's been a long time, a lot of classes, and I want to thank them for helping us do this throughout the whole pandemic. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with billions of hours of incredible Torah knowledge. Do not deny yourself that incredible treat. Go there, download classes, listen to them, and become as amazing as you can be. All righty. Now, I also want to tell you that uh, due to the incredible efforts of my brother, Rabbi Azriel Burnham, this class is now available on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Google Podcasts, on Op Apple Podcasts, under the name Burnham on the Parsha. So you can just look that up. And then if you'd like to listen to it in a podcast form, you can do that too. You can pretty much do anything you want today and get Torah. It's an incredible world we live in. I also want to point out, I want to say a good big thank you to the Rabboni Shalom because to the Lord above, right? Because A, because you guys are all amazing and you're here and I thank you for that. Uh, but B, because this Parsha, <laughs> what a Parsha, right? There's just certain Parshas. They're like the gift that does not stop giving. There is so much in this week's Parsha Let's just go through. We're not even going to be able to cover all the topics in this week's Parsha. You know why? Because there's too many topics to cover. But let's just go through. This is Parsha's Chukas. Let's go through some of the topics that we would be able to cover if we were to cover them all. There's the red heifer, the red cow, right? So there's the famous uh, law about how you become pure from ritual impurity and impurity. There's a whole thing about that thing. Then there's the death of Miriam. Miriam, Moshe's brother, she dies. When she dies, the well dries up. The Be'er Miriam dries up. And then the people protest. And then Hashem tells Moshe to hit the, to speak to the rock. And Moshe ends up hitting the rock. So much talk about that. And they get punished for that. Uh, then there is the attempt to try to peaceably make his way through various tribes and various lands on their way into Israel. This week's Parsha, by the way, is very special. Because this week's Parsha is the 38-year leap. When I say 38-year leap, what I mean is, hold on a second, let me make a bracha. In this week's parsha, we go from stories that happened early on in their time in the desert, and we leap all the way forward to their time at the way end, at the tail end of their time in the desert. There's like 38 years worth of excursions in the desert that not much noteworthy happened. The Torah doesn't tell you everything that happens, obviously, because the Torah is not a, a, a uh, you know, if you, if you go to the presidential library, I was at the, the Reagan Presidential Library in the Simi Valley in California. And you can literally like, you can read literally what he ate for breakfast every single day. Like the menu at the breakfast table every day is there. It's available. Like the Torah is not here to tell you what, what people ate for breakfast every day. The Torah is only here to tell you the most important, the most salient details that are most going to have a greatest effect on your life. So the Torah skips in this week's parsha about 38 years worth of non uh, eventful time in the desert. I mean, obviously it was all miraculous. They were eating the man. They were drinking from the bear Miriam. Uh, it's at the end of their time in the desert. Miriam dies. The bear dries up. We talked about that. Then they try to make their way into the land. They are attacked by a Amalek. 
Uh, there's a, a an, another time the Jewish people are complaining about the food. There are the fiery serpents that attack the Jewish people. And then Hashem commands Moshe to create a serpent and put it up on a stick. There's the serpents attacking and there's the serpents that are healing, right? Similar to the Keturus we spoke about last week. What is good, what is bad. Everything is either good or bad. depends how you use it. Then there is a, a secret thwarted attack upon the Jews that, that, that the Jews themselves didn't even know about. They only found out about later when they found the body parts of the attackers washing up in the water because the attackers were hidden in the mountains waiting to pounce on the Jewish people and God took them out. And again, if not for the fact that they had seen some of the body parts trailing in the water, they would not have even discovered this incredible miracle. They sing Shira to Hashem in this week's Torah portion. They sing a song to God, similar sort of like to what they sing you know, Yashir when they got out of the, the splitting of the sea. Another song they sing to God. There is another battle over here between Sichon, which was at that time pretty much of the strongest kingdoms in the world, and the Jewish people smote them mightily. And finally here, we are, that, that's this week's Parsha. So you think about that. This is all fit into, mind you, this whole entire story. Parsha's Chukas is only made up of 87 verses. And yet in 87 verses, there's all that goodness. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it's like, it's like I don't know if you know this, but, but runners, right? People are long distance runners. People who run marathons, people who run triathlons, they literally take these calorie packs that are just like intensely condensed fats, carbohydrates, sugars, salt, electrolytes. It doesn't really taste very good, but they literally will rip open a pack and just glug, 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 glug down intensely concentrated, like just calories and fats and sugars and salts, right? It doesn't, again, it doesn't taste good, but it's because they're running so much, they need that energy. This week's parts is only 87 verses, and yet it contains so much amazingness. So it's like those packs, but it, this one does taste really good. This one's amazing, and we could spend four hours. And if you guys want to stay with me, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll just do a marathon. Why do we have to always go for one hour? Why do we have to go one hour? Love money, girl. Why should we lose out? Let's go for four hours. Stick with me. No, I'm kidding. We're going to stop for after, after one hour because my kids are on vacation, which means I'm not on vacation. That's how, that's how it works, right? The kids are on vacation. The parents are no longer on vacation. We get vacation 10 months a year. And then two months a year, the kids are out. Right? Okay, anyway, all right, all right. Anyway, but that's, that's actually the truth. I, my kids are on vacation and I am not on vacation. So let's start off with talking about the golden, about not the golden calf, about the red calf, the red heifer, right? This week's Parsha is called Parsha's Chukas. The word Chukas means statues. And the Torah starts off this, this uh, parsha by Dabar Hashem al Moshe al Aaron Lamar. And Hashem spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the uh, the, the chok, the statute. We'll see what that means in a moment of the Torah. Asher Tziva Hashem Lamar. That Hashem uh, spoke saying, Dabar Abnei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people. Ba'yikhu elecha para adumat mima. Asher ein ba'mum. Asher lo aleha o. Take for yourselves this red cow. You got to find a cow with red hair, a gingy, right? You got to find a cow with red hair, entirely, completely red. It has two non-red hairs. It is disqualified, okay? It has to have no blemish on it. It has to have no, no, it has to never have worked a day. If you ever even just, if you threw down a, a, a bag of laundry on top of its back as you're walking into town, that's it. It's already considered already ha having been a worked. It has to be an animal that's never, ever been worked at, at all. And there's a whole process where you take it, you make it to a sacrifice. That sacrifice is then mixed with cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson thread, and burned, and, and the ashes 
are used in a mixture with water to purify those who have been ritually contaminated, which by the way, ritual contamination in and of itself is a pretty wild thing, right? Because ritual contamination, you don't look any different. Imagine a person is in a house, okay? And God forbid someone dies in the house. Everybody in the house becomes ritually impure, right? That's a, that's a law. Or even forget that. Imagine someone's standing outside of a house. In the house, there is a corpse. They're standing outside the house and you take all their measurements. You take their weight, you take their blood pressure, you take their uh, height, you take uh, 38 degrees of measurements, cholesterol, LDL, HDL, I mean, insulin. You take every possible measurement, labs, you do all the labs. You take white blood cell count, red blood cell, you do it all. And then the man steps into a house where there's a dead body. And then he comes back out and you repeat all the tests. And guess what? He's exactly the same physically, but spiritually he's ritually impure. And he's got to go through a whole process of purification involving the ashes of the red heifer. So this mitzvah has so many strange components to it. So many strange components. Even Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest of all men said, I become wise, but it's still so far away from me. I still don't understand what is going on with this mitzvah paraduma. Okay, so this is, and, and by the way, that's what the word chok means. The word chukas Torah, this is the chok of the Torah. Chok is a law, a statute that you don't understand the reasoning. There are laws that are called mishpatim. There are laws that make sense. The Torah says to you, honor your parents, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those things all make sense. Once you start talking to me about red heifer ash blood, blood water, red heifer ash water with crimson threads and acacia wood and hyssop and ritual purity, ritual impurity, I start to, I start to lose track. I start to lack understanding. But it's not just me. It's even King Solomon. Okay. Now, I want to read to you something fascinating. I want to, I want to read to you the first Rashi in this week's Torah portion. Because the, the first Rashi in this week's Torah portion seems to have a lot of complications in it. Okay. Sukkah Satora. This is the Chok of the Torah. It says Rashi, the Fisha Satan because the Satan and the nations of the world are going to bother the Jewish people. Lomar, Ma Mitzvahzos. What, what is this mitzvah? What is this thing? The guy walked into a house. He was fine, and then he walked out. He's ritually impure because there was a dead corpse on the other end of the house. He didn't come anywhere near it, and he was even triple masked. He was wearing three masks as recommended by the CDCCC, right? He was, with, <laughs> he was wearing three masks. He didn't come anywhere near the dead body. How did he become Tame? How did he become ritually impure? Be like, no, no, sorry. That's it. He's ritually impure right now. You know, I, I just went into a doctor's office. I took my daughter for a, for a, a checkup with the doctor. And this is a, a, a Beaumont doctor's office. And they do this, you know, they do this, um, this temperature check, right? Now I know how many buildings I've gone into. They give you this temperature check and it comes to like, oh, you're fine. You have a 95.4 temperature, which by the way, if you have a 95.4 temperature, you should be going to the hospital immediately, right? Because there's something incredibly wrong with you. Your body's not meant to get that cold, right? So I'm thinking at least the hospital, because they had some funky, like cool, you know, uh, you know, uh, temperature checks, some some cool thermometers. I'm like, I'm like, so they they do they do the whole scan. They don't just put it next to your forehead. They go, 
<laughs> like, I'm like, all right, well, well, after that intensive scan with this high level, you know, your thermometer looks way more expensive and way more fancy than mine. So I say, what's my temperature? They say 97.0. Amazing. Anyway, the bottom line is that it's hope. To me, all these, a lot of these rules that we have right now, we're at the level of hope. They don't make any sense. But anyway, why are we giving everybody temperature checks when the thermometers are all broken and cannot tell? But okay, whatever it is. So the person, the people, the Satan is going to come to the Jewish people and they be like, what are you following these laws? What's the reason for these laws? And the Umos Ha'olam, the nations of the world around us, they'll be like, I don't understand. I took it into a laboratory. I brought this guy into a laboratory and I checked him out with a, a 101 point diagnostic, like Firestone on your car. You know what I'm saying? Like you bring your car into Firestone for an oil change. They're like, oh, by the way, sir, we ran a 101 point inspection and we wanted to tell you that you can get a new air filter for $17. And so like they run a so they give you the, 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 the umos ha'olam, the people of the world, the scientists of the world. They're going to say to you, I gave this man a 101-point inspection before he walked into the building. And I gave him a 101-point inspection afterwards. He's exactly the same person. How, what do you mean he's ritually impure? So says Rashi, and then you're going to tell me you're going to purify him by throwing water on him that has ashes from a red heifer? that had only maybe one hair that wasn't red, but mostly red hair, and it never had any burden. And, and, and if the red heifer carried someone's pajamas home from a slumber party, then the red heifer wouldn't work suddenly? Like, what's going on over here? What are you doing? What are you talking about? So more, So therefore, Rashi says, Therefore, the Torah calls it a chok, which is what? It is a decree from before me, you have no permission to seek further understanding of it. You have no permission to try to think about it and say, I don't know, just like, after means to have like thoughts about it. You don't have any thoughts. You're like, I don't understand this. This makes no sense to me. Yeah, guess what? You don't have to. It's not your job to make sense of it. Okay. So there's, there's, there's some parts of this that make sense. Some parts of it make sense in the sense that, like, yeah, I don't understand this. And Hashem's saying, okay, you, you're not supposed to understand this. But the language here is weird. The language is because the Satan and the nations of the world are going to ask you about it. Therefore, it says that it's a chok. No, it's a chok, period. The end. This law makes no sense, period. The end. It's got nothing to do with whether they're asking you about it or not. You guys with me? She says, because people are going to ask you about it. That's why the Torah said this is a chok, which is you can't ask any questions. It doesn't make sense, but you got to follow it. Even if the nations of the world didn't say diddly squat to you, it would still be a chok. Okay. So the Svas Emes, one of the great Gera Rebbe's, says the following idea. He says, every mitzvah in the Torah has a reason. Every single, if, if God in his incredible wisdom chose to make this as a law, clearly it has a reason. However, not always is that reason available to us human beings with our limited understanding. However, here's the important however. Amazingly, Hashem does us a tremendous favor. And he says, if you do me the kindness, so to speak, of doing this mitzvah without asking any questions, 
you, by, by nature, human beings by nature, only want to do what they understand. It's very hard for me to do something that I don't understand. But if you're willing to go against your nature and do this mitzvah, even though you don't understand it, I may do you a favor and help you understand it. I may allow you into the secrets in my innermost chamber and help you understand the idea behind this mitzvah. Let's break it down with a human story. There is a author, I'm trying to remember what his name is. I think his last name is Gray. He wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then he wrote another book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. Stephen Covey, his name was Covey, right? Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey wrote this book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And then he wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. And then he promptly got divorced. <laughs> so evidently he wasn't so good at the second one. In any case, but by the way, part of that is just celebrity is not a healthy thing for any, any family life. Celebrity is not a healthy thing. I remember, I'm not, I'm not going to say which celebrity it was, but there was a Jewish celebrity who was... Uh, you know, he was, a, he was a musician of sorts. I'm not going to say his name. And uh, suddenly he was being trotted out on all these big shows. And, and, uh, and I said to my wife, I said, this, there's this, no way this ends well. Like this kind of celebrity and this kind of scrutiny and this kind of fame and this kind of, it, it just, I, I'm really, 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 really concerned about it. And then unfortunately, this, uh, this musician ended up leaving the faith. And I mean, he tried to make it as a musician. The ironic thing is that the thing that made him a novelty as a musician was that he had this beard and a hat and a jacket and all that. Like once you lose that, you're just like another dude playing music out of your garage. You know what I'm saying? Whatever it is. But sadly, fame it can do some crazy things to people. But in any case, so I'm not blaming Stephen Covey maybe for getting divorced. I have no idea what happened there. But the bottom line is Stephen Covey writes in his book uh, about, about, about highly effective families. He writes the following story. He was talking about that there is an importance in just having time where you're just sort of just giving to somebody else in a low and physical way without like any kind of pressure, any kind of expectation. And he, he mentioned that his wife, I forgot what his wife used to do, whatever it was, but she would sometimes at the end of a, of a long day of, of walking around, she would have like her feet would be sore. And sometimes they would sit on the couch at the end of the day and they would kind of go over their day and he would like just, you know, give her feet a massage or whatever it is, just, you know, and he, he mentioned the following story, something fascinating. His wife always wanted to buy GE appliances. And I have to remember, today the appliance market is pretty hot. There's a lot of companies out there. There's Frigidaire, there's Viking, there's, you know, uh, there's uh, Sub-Zero. There's, there's a lot of companies, you know, <laughs> there's many, many more. I, just, I don't remember the names of all of them. Samsung, Samsung. And there's a lot of companies out there that are selling appliances, whether it be washers, dryers, refrigerators, whatever. Is. There's so many companies, but his wife was always insistent that they buy GE. And, and it used to bother him, but he would just be like, okay, fine, whatever, because sometimes you get a great deal. But I, I know you want to buy GE, but there's an amazing deal right now on the, you know, on the Frigidaire monogram series or whatever it might be. And we can get it for half the price. Or, no, GE, GE, GE. And he, he would say to her, why do you want to get GE? And he's like, I don't know. I just like GE. Right. And by the way, there are certain people like, I, it's amazing. I had, when I first bought laptops, we're talking about going like 25 years ago, probably, literally like maybe 23 years ago. When I first bought a laptop, I bought a Dell and I had a really bad experience with a Dell. Um, you know, and, and, and pretty much since then, I just will not buy a Dell. 
I have no idea where Dell is holding today in terms of their laptops. I'm sure they're a lot better than they were back in the day, but I had some really, I had some, some really negative experiences with the Dell company. When I first bought a Dell, going back literally probably 23, 24 years ago by now, and I have not bought a Dell since, but I can tell you why. If you ask me, why is it rational that you don't buy a Dell? I say it may not be rational, but I just, I don't buy a Dell because my first experience with Dell was very, very negative. It was very buggy. I had a lot of problems. Customer service was not appropriately responding to my concerns. That's it. So I, I, I know, I recognize that maybe it's crazy. Maybe Dell today is the best company. Maybe they make better computers today than HP. And, and well, I don't buy Apple for, for other reasons, but just because of, it's complicated. Anyway, is I don't buy Dells, but I know why. But his wife only wanted GE and she couldn't explain why. I don't understand, honey. Why do you want the GE? The Frigidaire is $300 cheaper and it's a better, and it's got more storage. And da, da, da. I just want the GE. Why? I don't know. Okay. But he always bought the GE. As they say, happy wife, happy life, right? Shalom in the home. So years go by. They're, talking about they're married 20 years, 20 years plus at this point. And one night, he's just sitting back on a couch. The wife had a long day. He's giving her feet a little massage. It's very quiet in the house. The kids are all in bed. And they're just having a moment, affectionate touch, you know, like very, very calm, very quiet. And she starts remembering, I don't know, she starts talking about her childhood. And she remembers that her father was really not a very successful person. And he constantly was bouncing from job to job. But for a while, her father had an appliance store and her father was selling the appliances, but he, he couldn't pay, pay the, he couldn't pay the, the companies that the supply, the, the companies that were supplying him. And eventually, you know, he had, he had a bunch of stock and he couldn't sell this in, in his warehouse. He had a bunch of washers, dryers, whatever it was. And at one point, all the other companies basically said to him, like, we're done. We're not extending you any more credit and you're done. And he begged them. He's like, look, I got a family to feed, whatever it is. And they're like, I'm sorry, you owe us, you know, at this point, this is going back many, many decades. Maybe at that point, it was like, you owe us $3,000, which was in those days, enough to buy a house and, and, a, and a cow and a horse and, a, and a whatever, you know? Anyway, so um, they stopped extending him credit. And GE was the only company that said, you know what? We're going to give you a chance. And somehow he, he made it through and he, he stayed, he was able to stay in the business. He got through and he stayed. Stayed in the business for another couple of years. And suddenly he realizes, Stephen Covey realizes, the reason why my wife all this time wanted GE, if I would have asked her, and I did ask her, why do you want GE? She couldn't even, she couldn't even verbalize it. But now I finally got there and I understand it. But here's the amazing thing. Part of the reason why Stephen Covey was able to finally understand his wife a little better was because he listened to her. And he fought her tooth and nail all the time over everything he didn't understand that she wanted. Guess what? He wouldn't have been married 20 years. Because part of being married to someone for 20 years means saying, okay, I don't know why you want this, but you got it. No problem. Because what's important to you is important to me. That's how you get to stay in the marriage long enough to start discovering more about your wife. There we go. John's giving me the, the thumbs up, right? There we go, right? So the, the answer is, if you are always pushing, no, why do you want to do this? It's like you're, you're, you, you're always fighting against anything you don't understand, right? Which again, this Fosemus is saying to us, our natural tendency is to only want to do what we understand. 
The problem is when we follow that natural, that natural tendency, there's no room for others in a relationship with us because part of it, what it takes to make a relationship work is the ability to let in the other and letting in the other automatically by definition means that we're not following what we want or what makes sense to me. But the amazing thing is that if you stay in the relationship, you end up discovering what the other is. That's the beauty. The beauty of staying in the relationship is you actually get to discover other people in this world. Because you've opened yourself up to them. And they don't immediately just gush on out. Nobody gushes on out. Nobody healthy, at least. They come slowly and in trickles. But you get to understand them and who they are and what shapes them more and more and more. And their beauty comes out more and more over time when you let them emerge over time. But if every time they try to express their opinion and it doesn't make sense to you, you shut it down. That's so ridiculous. Then you never, ever get to discover that person, which is the greatest. You rob yourself of the greatest travesty. Now, that's the way it works. That, that, that is... Now, that's a muscle for how it works with God. The Svasemis is saying is like this. What the Svasemis is saying here is that that's a, a, a parable for how it works with God. You have to understand, all relationships are supposed to teach us about our relationship to Hashem. The relationship we have with our parents. Why do we have parents? Why do we have parents? There are many species that never know their parents. Think about the maple tree. Right? The maple tree... Comes the right time of year, lets off that little floaty thing, you know. I think it's the maple tree. Has that little, you know, that little uh, whizzy, a little like it's got a little pod with the seed in it, and it's got a little like a single wing, and it just floats off in the breeze, and it doesn't. It's not supposed to land right at its parents' feet because the parents' shade will prevent it from growing, right? So it actually needs to be let go from its parents. That's a very big lesson for parenting too. You want to be able to raise healthy children, let them go. <laughs> as long as you're trying to raise them underneath you, your shade is going to stifle their ability to grow. So almost every tree, by the way, almost every single tree has some mechanism of getting out there to get away from its parents, because as long as it's trying to grow in its parent's shade, it's not going to grow. So the maple tree has this little you know, pod that flies around on a little single wing thing, and it gets picked up and lofted by the air, and it ends up landing 25 feet or 100 feet away from its parents. The pod releases, the maple tree starts growing, it doesn't know its father, it doesn't know its mother. And the same goes for the salmon, right? The salmon. The salmon mother strenuously goes upstream to spawn, right? The, 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 the easy way is not to go upstream, obviously. And it takes so much of the energy of the mommy salmon to go upstream that often by the time the, the salmon gets upstream and lets go of its eggs, it's dead or almost entirely dead. It gives its life to bring offspring into the world. Another lesson for today's generation, a generation that is so narcissistic that people just don't want to have children anymore. Look at nature. The salmon is literally giving its life, struggling to go upstream just to be able to spawn in a place where the children will be able to thrive, even though it's giving of its life. And unfortunately today, the more developed the country is, the less they want to have children. It's an amazing thing. The more advanced, the more developed, the more academic, a country is, the less the children, the people want to have children. And we, we are facing a population crisis in many countries of the world, a population crisis not of too many people, of too few people. There are countries like Australia and Russia that are desperately trying to bribe people to have children because they're not having enough children. 
Anyway, back to us. So the maple tree has no, the, the doesn't recognize his parents, and the salmon doesn't recognize his parents, and the frog doesn't recognize his parents, and the leatherback turtle doesn't recognize his parents. Right? The the mommy turtle comes onto the shore, deposits the eggs, and covers them off with sand, and then disappears. So many species don't recognize their parents. Hashem gives those parents because he wants us to recognize our relationship to him through us seeing that our parents take care of us all the time and give to us so much. We recognize what he does for us. And we have spouses. Believe it or not, there are, first of all, the plant life doesn't really have spouses, right? Not really in, in any really meaningful sense. Even the animal life, some have spouses, some don't. There are even some very, very rare species that can impregnate themselves, right? As Betty Friedan once said, a man, a woman needs a man like a goldfish needs a bicycle. <laughs> Except that if the species wants to continue, we're going to need some men and some women in the mix. Goldfish and bicycles do not continue the species of humanity. But there are a few species of animal that are able to impregnate themselves. It's an amazing thing. But Hashem gave us spouses, and we're supposed to learn from that about our relationship to Hashem. As a matter of fact, the book of Shir Hashirim describes the relationship between God and the Jewish people as the relationship between a chassan and a kalab, a husband and wife. So... When we're talking about this, this relationship I just described to you with Stephen Covey and his wife and this idea that if you want to get to know your wife, you have to be able to just trust her and let her be and just accept what she wants without pushing what you want. And then you get to have the greatest kindness and the greatest beauty, which is discovering another human being. But if you always, always try to shut down the other human being with anything that she says that doesn't make sense to you, then you'll never discover the other human being. You'll be robbed of all the beauty of the relationship. The same thing goes with Hashem, says the Svas MS. Everything in the Torah has great reasons. Everything in the Torah has great, incredible, infinite wisdom. The trick to getting that wisdom is by not demanding the wisdom. Is by not, by saying, you know what, God? You want GE appliances? No problem. We'll get GE appliances. You want a red heifer? You got it. What else do you want on that red heifer? Oh, it shouldn't have even two hairs that are any other color? Okay, I'm writing it down. God, what else would you like? God says, I want to have no blemishes. Okay, no blemishes. What else, God? What else? God says, it should never have carried any burdens. No problem. No burdens. What else, God? Oh, then you're going to make an offering out of it. Well, okay, and what else? Oh, acacia wood? Fine. And hyssop? And crimson thread? Okay, and mix it with water and sprinkle it on people? And the person who carries it, and this person can become pure, and this person can become unpure, and ritual pure. No, I'm listening. I'm taking copious notes, God, because whatever you want, I'm going to give you. You do that, and amazingly, then Hashem says, now that you've trusted in me, now that you've gone against your own base desire, your own base desire is only to do what makes sense to you. But because you've gone against your base desire, and you've worked with me, and you've been in a relationship with me, and you've been real with me, now you're, I'm going to let you into the beauty of my secrets from time to time. There's a medrash that says that Hashem says to Moshe, tell the Jewish people that this is the chok of the Torah for them. Says the medrash, lecha ani megale taime para, to you, Moshe, I will reveal the secrets and the reasons behind the paraduma. But to other people, it will be a chok. It will be ununderstandable. Now let's contrast two different people. 
Let's contrast Shlomo HaMelech and Moshe Rabbeinu. Both of them were called the most of all people in one specific area. Shlomo was called the wisest of all men. Moshe was called not the wisest of all men, the humblest of all men. Moshe was Anav Mikola Adam. Now, interestingly, Shlomo Amalch may have been the wisest of all men, but he, that wisdom actually gave him a mistake. It, it caused him a pretty major, major mistake. It caused him to think that I understand what God wants out of us. So even though God said that a king should not have too many wives, I'm going to bring about this incredible peace for the whole world by having every country send me a wife and Shlomo Melch married a thousand women. He had one wife from every nation, every tribe, and his goal and his intention was beautiful, to bring peace. to He wanted to bring the whole world under the dominion of God. And in those days, royalty generally made alliances by marriage. He had all the right intentions. And he thought, I know why God doesn't want me to marry too many wives, but I'm going to be okay. But you know what happened? It wasn't okay. His wives ended up serving idols in his palace. Shlomo Amelech, who was not the most subservient, he was the wisest, but all, because he was so wise, it actually made his failure. He's like, I understand what God wants because I'm so wise, therefore I can figure out a way to circumvent what God wants. And he ends up making a major, major blunder. And what does he say? I don't understand Paraduma. I'm so smart, but it's still far away from me. Moshe Rabbeinu, on the other hand, Moshe, our incredible leader, the humblest of all men, Hashem says to him, to you, to you, I'm going to tell you why I have the laws of the Paraduma, but for everybody else, it's going to be a chok. The key to understanding God's infinite depth is not wisdom, it's humility. The key, and again, this is something, again, it's amazing. It, it plays out in our, in our relationships between man and, 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 and wife. This is something that we see in our own personal relationships. The more you try to control your spouse, the more you try to force your spouse to only do what makes sense to you, the less you'll ever get to know your spouse because you're trying to turn your spouse into you. And what a shame that would be. Because the whole purpose of a relationship is that you should meet another. Is that you should be broadened by another perspective. Is that you should have the incredible, incredible privilege of another person opening themselves to you in your lifetime. But the more you try to control another person, the less you'll ever, ever get that. You won't get the beauty of children, the relationship you can have with children, if you try to control your children too much. If you try to create your children into little automatons that are just living out your desires, your fantasies, whatever you wanted, then you don't get to have the beauty of seeing your own diverse set of children grow up with their own unique pathways and beauty and joys. And the same thing goes for Hashem. Hashem says, the way you're going to get to know me is by not testing me. The way you're going to get to know me is by trusting me. The way you're going to get to know me is that when I give you a mitzvah that is a chok, that is understandable, it's so unclear, what is this mitzvah all about? How do we understand this mitzvah? But you say, I'm going to do it anyway. Because this is what God commanded me. 
to you, I will explain. You will be it will be revealed to you. You will start to understand the deepest depths. Says the Svas Emes, when the nations of the world say to us, when the Satan says to us, the Satan says to us, why are you doing this mitzvah? It makes no sense. And the nations of the world say, I put it in my laboratory. And I don't understand it. It makes, I, I did all the tests. I ran all the tests. There's no such thing as ritual purity and ritual impurity. You know, you say to them, you say to them, let's read it inside. Because the Satan is going to come asking you and bothering you, why is this happening? And because the nations of the world are going to demand an answer, I don't need an answer. I myself don't need an answer. I follow God, whatever he says. But because they're asking me, what's the explanation? How do you understand this? You know what I say back to them? I say the Torah called this a chok. And a chok is the kind of law that I'll never understand by seeking the answer. I say to them, I know there's an answer. I know that God is wise enough. If God could create the human finger, God could have a reason for paraduma. If God could create a, 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 a bacterial biome inside of you, you have about three pounds of bacteria inside of you, and you have trillions of bacteria. Now, interestingly enough, actually, it's not inside of you. Think about this crazy thought. You have a hole in your body that starts in the front and goes all the way to the back, from your mouth to the back. That's actually one big hole. So if you think about it, your whole your body is actually a donut, and it just got a very, very, very long hole, right? Your alimentary canal, which starts in your mouth and ends at the bottom, right? That canal is literally a hole that goes all the way through you. So you are literally donut-shaped. <laughs> you didn't think about that before, did you? Anyway, but in but, <laughs> but the donut hole is really, 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 really long. It's about, I don't know, like 40 feet long to include the small intestines, the long intestines, your 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 esophagus, your stomach, et cetera, et cetera. I think probably no, it's a little bit less than that. It's about 20. I think your long intestines is about. Um, 26, your, your big intestines is like three or four feet and your long intestines, I think is about 26 feet. So you're about 30 feet long. You've got a 30 foot donut hole inside of you, but inside that donut hole is about three pounds of bacteria. And those bacteria do amazing things. They break down stuff that you can't break down. You like B12 vitamins? Yeah, I do. I do also. I know. You like B6? Yeah, me too. You like all, there's so much things that you, your body has no ability to break it down, but your bacteria does it for you. As a matter of fact, listen to this amazing, amazing, amazing fact. The reporter's film is so good. When a mother feeds its child, the mother gives its child in her milk so many incredible, incredible things. So many incredible things. But included in the mother's milk are dozens of forms of sugar that the baby simply has no way to digest. So you got to wonder to yourself, why is the mother wasting all of its energy creating sugars that the baby can't digest. And the answer is the mother is setting up the bacterial colony in her baby's stomach because that bacterial colony in your stomach does so much good for you throughout your life, breaking down things that you can't break down. The amount of enzymes that you can create on your own is dwarfed by the amount of enzymes created by your bacterial biome. And your mom is getting you started by giving you sugars that you can't eat. They're not for you. No, honey, this is not for you. This is for the bacteria. I want you to have a nice bacterial colony. So I'm giving this to your, your bacteria. Now, if you could create that, I'm sure you could have a reason for a red heifer. 
the more I try to look for that reason, and the more I try to say my adherence to this mitzvah is going to be dependent on my understanding of this mitzvah, then number one, I'll never understand it, and number two, I won't do it. And I'll lose my relationship with God entirely. But if I say to God, whatever you want, you want GE appliances, I'm in, because I know that you know best. 20 years down the line, I may understand why God wants GE appliances. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's so beautiful. I finally understand the Rabboni Shalom a little bit more. And the more we let the Rabboni Shalom be the Rabboni Shalom, and don't try to second guess him, and don't try to say, well, I don't understand those missiles. I'm not going to follow it. The more you follow the missiles because of God being God, the more you'll eventually start to understand him. Who understands God better? The wisest of men? No, the humblest of men. Okay, beautiful. That is idea number one in this week's Parsha. Idea number two. Musha is told by Hashem to speak to the rock. Musha hits the rock. And Moshe then is told, you will not enter the land of Israel. Because you did not listen to me. To sanctify me, you will not come into the land. Let's see it inside. Let's see it inside. And Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, Yan Bilagdisheni. This is in, in chapter Parak Chaf Puzzle Yud Bez, chapter 20, verse 12 in the book of Numbers by Midbar. Again, by Hashem and Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, Yan Lohemantan Bilagdisheni, because you did not listen to me to sanctify me, Lain Ibn Israel in front of the eyes of all the Jewish people. Therefore, you will not be able to lead this people. You will not come with these people into the land that I have given them. So the indication here is that the reason why Moshe and Aaron were not allowed to go into the land of Israel, we'll focus more on Moshe today. The reason why Moshe was not allowed to go into the land of Israel was because of what he did by hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. However, there's a little bit of a problem. There are a few other reasons given for Moshe not being allowed to come into the land of Israel. Let's go back, take a trip down memory lane to the good old days in the winter here in Michigan when we were reading Parsha Shmos, the book of Exodus. And at the end of the book, the first Parsha in Exodus, Hashem tells Moshe to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the Jews go. And he does. And the Pharaoh, instead of letting the Jews go, believe it or not, doubles down and makes life more miserable for the Jews. He says, no more will I give you the straw to build your bricks. You now have to go find your own straw to build the bricks. And you still have to make the same amount of bricks. And the Jewish people are now getting beaten mercilessly. The, 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 the level of the work that's being demanded of them has increased dramatically. They are being beaten. Things are not going well. And the Jewish people see uh, Moshe. And the Jewish people, they meet Moshe, Ves, Aaron, Nitzavim, the Krasam, as they were standing uh, opposite them. But say some may his power when they're coming out of Paro. By Yomru Aleim, and the Jewish people say to Moshe, Yera Hashem Aleichem Yishpot, Hashem should look upon you and judge, because you have made our, our, our scent abhorrent in the eyes of Paro, in the eyes of the servants. 
He's making now there's a there's a sword above us. They're going to kill us because we're not going to be able to do, we're not going to be able to meet these quotas, and you're going to be the cause of our death. So what happens? Moshe goes to Hashem. Moshe el Hashem Yomer, and Moshe goes back to Hashem and he says, Adunai lama hareosa lama lama Hashem, my master, why did you do bad to these people? Why did you send me? basi al paro from the time that I came to paro. To say to your and speak in your name, he has made it worse for these people. You didn't save your people, you told me you were going to save your people. But ever since I went and spoke to God, he's only made it worse, he hasn't made it better. What's going on? Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. The Medrash tells us right over here, you will see now what I will do to Paro, but you know what you will not see? You will not see what I will do to the 31 kings that live in Israel. You will be able to redeem the Jewish people from Pharaoh, but you will not be able to see the incredible miracles I will perform for the Jewish people when I bring them into the land of Israel because of your lack of faith in me. Okay, here it is. Rashi right over there says, Lefikach, therefore Atta Tira, now you'll see. You'll see what I'll do to Paro. You will not see what I'll do to the kings of the seven nations when I bring them to the land of Israel, which indicates that the reason why Moshe was not allowed to go into the land of Israel was a punishment for his seeming lack of faith in God when God told him to speak to Pharaoh, and he spoke to Pharaoh, and Moshe came out to God with, with tightness, with complaints. Why did you do bad to the Jewish people? And this was considered a lack of faith on Moshe's part, and therefore he was punished with not being able to bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel. So, so far, we have two reasons why he was not led into the land of Israel. But wait, there's more. There's a metrish that says that the reason why Moshe was not allowed into the land of Israel, and he was buried in the desert still, in the, the Transjordan, on the other side of Israel, was because there were the 40, the, all the people who died in the desert in the 40 years. There were so many Jews who died in the desert in the 40 years, and they might not be deserving of being given a second life during the time of the resurrection of the dead. We have a concept of it's the last of the 13 principles of faith that we believe that we will come back to life in physical bodies in this world at some point after the Messianic era. And there's a concept that is brought down that Moshe was buried specifically not in Israel so that he could be the incredible impetus to cause that even those who are buried out of Israel will get lifted up, including all those who died in the desert. Okay, so we've got three reasons over here. Is it because he didn't he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock? Rock? Is it because he complained to God that God was not doing good for the Jewish people after he had spoken to Pharaoh? Or is it that he should lead the people out of the the, the, the people buried in the ground, the Mese Midbar, the people who died in the Midbar, that he should give them a strong support that they should all be given a second chance in Tchiasamesim? Says Rav Meir Shapira of Lublin, the famous incredible rabbi who started the Dafyomi program, started the first modern yeshiva, 
the Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin, he says like this, these are all ideas that come from the same place. Moshe Rabbeinu was 100,000% the most dedicated possible leader of the Jewish people. The reason why he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, even though he knew that God told him to speak to the rock, was because if he had just spoken to the rock and said, rock, pour forth your waters, and the rock did, that would create a system where any Jew who ever did a sin would have major, major, major complaints against him. If even a rock that is not alive would produce water, which it's impossible for it to do, based on the simple word of God, how could you not listen to the word of God? Right? So Moshe knew that this would cause a major kind of a legal mounting complaint against the Jewish people. If you don't serve the word of God, how could you not listen to the word of God? Even the rock listened to the word of God and the rock is not even alive and it did something totally against its possibilities to do. And God is asking you to wear tzitzis? God is asking you to keep kosher? God is asking you to keep Shabbos, things that are good for you? And you're not going to do it? So Moshe hit the rock so as to prevent the Jewish people having such a big taina against them. By the way, we see this later. Who does this later in history? Does anybody know if you want to put it into your chat box over here? If anybody can think of another person in history who disobeyed God because he didn't want there to be a major, major legal complaint, so to speak, against the Jewish people for not fulfilling God's will. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? The answer is Yonah. The prophet Jonah, Hashem told him, go to Tarshish and warn the people. But Jonah didn't do it. He tried to run away. He tried to get on a boat. No, no, sorry, sorry, no, no, no. He was supposed to go to Nineveh. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh to warn the people that Hashem was going to destroy their city because they weren't doing the right thing. But Jonah said, uh-oh, you know what's going to happen? The people of Nineveh are going to repent. And then... What's it going to look like for the Jewish people? The Jewish people are serving idols. The people of Nineveh are not serving idols. It's going to be such a such a categoria, such a negative complaint against the Jewish people. Let me run away. Let me run away. Let me run away. So he tries to run away. Of course, it doesn't work. Hashem has him split out into the sea, thrown into the sea. The whole story, he ends up, he ends up washing ashore by Nineveh. But Yonah, because of his sacrifice for the Jewish people, was ready to run away and not follow Hashem's will because he did not want there to be this massive complaint against the Jewish people. The same thing goes for Moshe. Moshe said, if I just say to the rock, do this, and it does it, and I say to the Jewish people, don't serve golden calves, and they do, it's going to look really bad for them. So I'd rather, I'm going to hit the rock. I'll take the punishment, but just so the Jewish people should not have this incredible complaint against them. How could it be that you didn't listen to God's word when the, even the rock listened to God's word? So what we see here is that Moshe Rabbeinu is always ready and willing to be Moser Nefesh for the Jewish people, to literally give up, give up his life for the Jewish people. And that's why in Egypt, when life was getting worse for the Egyptians after God sent Moshe to speak to the Pharaoh, Moshe comes to, Pharaoh, Moshe comes to Hashem with, so to speak, complaints. Now, Moshe knows that God's going to work it all out, but Moshe's like, I can't see the pain of my people. Hashem, you, what are you doing? 
I can't see the pain of my people. I know I shouldn't be saying this, but I can't see the pain of my people. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I can't speak to the rock and let the rock follow the word of God when my flock, my Jewish people are not listening to the word of God. It's going to make them look so bad. I'd rather look bad than them look bad. I'd rather look bad by complaining to God than they look bad by getting pained and hurt. So what does Hashem say? What is your desire? Your desire to sacrifice what you want for the Jewish people, are no problem. I'll let you do that. How? You want very much to go into the land of Israel. But if you go into the land of Israel, maybe all those people who died in the desert, maybe they won't come back. Maybe they won't be resurrected. Maybe they don't deserve the resurrection. But if you're buried with them outside of Israel, then in your merit, they're going to be able to get out. What's your desire to sacrifice your things, your desires, your wants for the Jewish people? Fine. Hashem says, fine. You'll get exactly that. So all three of the ideas of why Moshe cannot go into the land of Israel are all connected. They're all connected. Again, the three reasons why he couldn't go in is number one, he complained to God. Why did you do bad to the Jewish people in Egypt? Number two, he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And number three, so that the people of, of the, the who died in the desert should be able to get out. And they're all 100% connected. They're all connected. The reason why he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock is he was sacrificing for the Jewish people. The reason why he said to God, why did you do it? It's because he was sacrificing for the Jewish people. And because of that, he got buried outside of Israel because he was sacrificing the ultimate sacrifice for the Jewish people so they should all get resurrected with the dead. But one important idea as well I want to point out from this. So that is the idea of Rav Meir Shapiro. But let's take it full circle. If you remember, we talked before about how the best way to make a relationship flourish is by allowing the other people to be them, right? We talk about that with God, right? We talk about with, with your spouse. If you keep forcing her, no, we're not buying the GE because we're going to buy Frigidaire because it's cheaper. You may never end up discovering why GE was a thing. You may not discover those nuggets and understandings of your wife. And if you don't want to trust Hashem and you think you got to figure it out better than Hashem, like Shlomo Melech, Hashem says, don't marry too many wives. I got to figure it out because I'm so wise. Guess what happens? All your wisdom, you won't be able to understand the paradigma. But the more you let the other person be them, then they're gonna, you're going to discover the depths in them. Amazingly, over here, too, Moshe Rabbeinu, you're so concerned for the Jewish people that you're willing to sacrifice for them. But that, that also, is, to a certain degree, makes you not the best leader. Because the best leader is the one who's going to let them go through whatever they've got to go through. Maybe you're right. Maybe it actually is a big taina on them. Maybe it is a big complaint on them that the word of God is enough to open up a rock and bring forth water. And it's not enough to stop them from serving idols. You got you to let them go. You got to let them be responsible for their own actions. If you keep fending for them and you keep protecting them from the, the consequences of their own bad deeds, then they're not going to learn to do the right thing. And that might be another idea of why Hashem says to Moshe, I get it. I understand. The reason why you're hitting the rock is because you don't want there to be complaints against the Jewish people because that would set them up for punishment, but maybe they need to go through that punishment. Maybe they need to do the wrong thing and get a little patch, and that's going to bring them around to their tikkun, to their actually fixing what they got to fix. 
what we learned from all this, I think the common denominator between the two different stories that we see in this thing, in, in, in this week's Parsha, and again, we didn't get to cover so many of the other stories. There's so much more in this week's Parsha, like I talked about in the beginning, there's so much more. But fascinating, the common denominator between the red heifer and the story of Moshe hitting the rock is the most important thing we learn is to let people be people. And the more we let them be them, the more we don't try to impose our will upon them, the more we get to discover who they are. And isn't that the most beautiful thing in the world, to get to know another person? And the more we let God be God and don't try to put God on trial and don't try to say, well, God, I'm only going to follow this mitzvah because I understand it. I'm not going to follow that mitzvah because I won't understand it. Guess what? You're never going to understand. Again, if, it, if the people, and you meet people like this all the time, they say, well, this mitzvah I do because it makes sense to me, but that one I don't do. If you, if you say to God, I'm only going to do this mitzvah because I understand it. I'm not going to do that mitzvah because I don't understand it. You know what? You're never going to understand God. If you say to your wife, I'm going to let you do this because this makes sense, and I won't let you do this because it doesn't make sense to me, you'll never discover your wife. If you say, because I understand it, and I won't follow this mitzvah because I don't understand it, you'll never understand God. So let's have the humility. Let's follow Moshe's way and be the anamikal adam, be the humblest of all people and say, I don't understand every mitzvah in the Torah. They don't all make sense to me but I'm going to follow them anyway. And then God will slowly, beautifully reveal himself to us. And there can be nothing more beautiful than that. Understanding the divine, real, real divine wisdom and personality, not personality, not personhood, but the real, the real, the real God, understanding God. All righty guys, that's been awesome. Thank you all so much for coming and thank you all for being awesome.